Good morning. Great to see you here this morning. Happy St. Stephen's Day. No, St. Stephen's Day? No? All right. Happy Boxing Day. Maybe there's a few Canadians in the crowd. I don't think we celebrate Boxing Day quite like uh, the Canadians once did. I know it was a Boxing Day was uh, in more recent time uh, a uh, an opportunity for stores to make some money back after the holiday season, a busy shopping day, at least north of the border. I know that because I'm half Canadian. And so anyway, we spent some Christmases in Canada. But uh, I think Black Friday is much bigger for us down here, right? So anyway, uh, St. Stephen's Day was historically a day, um, you guys are maybe familiar with the Christmas song, uh, Good King Wenceslas, Wenceslas. However you say that, yeah, that's, that song's about today. So that's like the not Christmas Christmas song that we should be singing the day after. So I don't think we'll sing it this morning, but I'm not going to sing it for you. But we are in that gap between, uh, between Advent, between Christmas and the new year. Um, kind of a, this interesting, you know, dark hole. No, not really. But uh, this, this week when people begin to uh, take down their Christmas decorations or not, but, uh, but many do. And, uh, and we, uh, are in between another gap. We have finished our series in the Gospel of John, and we are looking ahead to the next series. Uh, I will let you know we'll be in 1 Corinthians, so the, uh, the letter of Paul to the Corinthian church that we know as 1 Corinthians. Um, and it's fallen on me to preach this morning, and uh, I was able to kind of choose what we wanted to preach on, or what I wanted to preach on this morning, and I thought it would be fitting as we say farewell to 2021, and we look forward to 2022, that we look uh, actually, at the, the last words of Paul, the, Paul's parting words to the Corinthian church at the end of 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles and you would turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, uh, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning, or 11 through 13, depending what version of the Bible you have. There are a couple of combined verses in there. Don't worry, nothing's missing. But if you would stand together with me in honor of the reading of God's word, and we'll read... God's word for us this morning. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for the year that you have given to us. Lord, despite all of its twists and surprises, Lord, even perhaps up to this last week, um, Lord, we know that nothing has been a surprise to you, that you are sovereignly in control of all things, and that you have your, your way for your glory in all that has happened this year And all that will happen next year, Lord, we do not know what is to come, but we know that you do, and we rest confidently in that. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would be open to what you have for each one of us uh, here in this room this morning, that we might learn from you, that we may grow uh, from your word, that we might be challenged as we look forward to another year uh, of faithful service to you and growth together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't want to take too much away from uh, the coming upcoming series in First. 
Corinthians, um, but I do think we need to have a little bit of context for, for us as we begin, just so we understand what Paul is talking about here uh, in, his, uh, in this letter, some of the things he's going to address. Um, so the church at Corinth, not sure what you know about the church at Corinth, but it was the church that required the bulk of Paul's attention. Uh, the church in Corinth um, uh, was one that Paul visited three times. He wrote uh, at least four letters to. Two of those we have in our, in our Bible. Two of them we, we have likely the, the second and fourth letter. So I hope that doesn't throw you way off. First Corinthians is likely second. And anyway, uh, the second letter, still our first and, uh, and, and Second Corinthians, likely the fourth letter that he wrote. Maybe he wrote more, we don't know, but we do have these two in our canon. And it's notable that he writes more to this church than to any other church that we have recorded in the New Testament. There's a reason for that. This church was riddled with problems, it was ripe with division. John MacArthur lists the following ten problems or errors that Paul addresses in First Corinthians. Unity, servanthood, morality, marriage, liberty, the roles of men and women in the church, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, the resurrection, and stewardship. And likely there are more, and as we go through 1 Corinthians together in the coming months, we will be looking at what Paul has to say about those topics and many more. Um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul lays out a an explanation of his role as an apostle, his ministry, and also a defense of it. Despite all of this, Paul does not give up on the Corinthian church. It's important to note that even here through to the end of this epistle that we have, Paul continues to look forward to growing uh, to their growth, and he, he doesn't give up on them. Um, he does continually rebuke, admonish, exhort, but also encourage them, reminding them of who they are in Christ and that the, call, the calling they have uh, to live like it, to live like saints. The tone in most of Second Corinthians, the letter that we're looking at the end of today, is, is fairly serious. Earlier in the 13th chapter, if you look just a little bit earlier, verse 5 in that area, he calls them to examine themselves or test themselves to see if they are indeed in the faith. He reminds them um, that the reason that he's writing this letter now is so that when he comes to them, because he's planning to visit, that he won't have to be severe. He won't have to use severity in correcting them. But here at the very end, this, the tone shifts. It becomes softer. And uh, he is looking forward to his visit to them and he says farewell here but though the tone has shifted paul is none or is not done rather with his instructions and and here in these parting words we will see six essential commands one enduring promise and one encouraging benediction so we'll start by looking at this Uh, paul begins by saying finally brethren And again, he has begun this letter, his other letters to them, by reminding them that they are saints, by referring to his audience as saints. He doesn't condemn them for their their divisiveness. He still calls them saints, or in this case, brethren. And he's reminding them once again that they are brothers in Christ, and he appeals to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he proceeds with the first five of six imperative statements or commands for the Corinthians to follow. And especially in light of 
the divisions that this church had had and experienced, these are essential commands for them. They're essential for them to maintain unity. I'm happy, as I know the rest of our pastoral staff and the elders are, that Valley Bible Church is not a church full of division, that we don't struggle with, or at least it's not apparent that we struggle with as many of the things as the Corinthians church did. But we must recognize that that potential is always there, isn't it? The potential is there. We are far from perfect. Perhaps you've heard it said. I know when I first went to Bible college, well, the first chapel we had, they encouraged us to get involved in a church, and then they quickly told us, if you find a perfect church, don't go. You'll mess it up, right? And so don't. we're not a perfect church. We don't claim to be. We are, of course, striving to, uh, to follow the Lord in all the things that we do, but we recognize that we have imperfections as well. This past year has not been an easy one for many. I know a lot of us ended 2020, and we went, whew, 2021, that's going to be a lot easier. We're over this thing, right? Hasn't been an easy one. There's been filled actually with many reasons for people to divide. There's been hostile, divisive language on the news, um, directly from our uh, our politicians, our our political uh, government leaders, in workplaces, probably around drinking fountains, online, of course, but all meant to divide. Masks, vaccines, sex ed, transgenderism, critical race theory in our schools, in our workplaces. And the list could go on and on of the issues we have seen rise over the last year or two. And I, I know many, and I'm sure that you probably know, people who have divided with friends or family members, even amongst believers over many of these issues that we're facing today. And who knows what we'll be facing in 2023. Oh, 2022. Also in 2023. It's even further away. In 2022. What we do know is this, that our adversary would love nothing more than to divide us, to tear us apart. And so we must also strive for unity. We must take these commands to heart. Paul's first command to the Corinthians in our text is rejoice, rejoice. The Corinthians are to rejoice in what Jesus has done, and so are we, to rejoice in what Jesus has done. Despite their problems, the Corinthians have reason to rejoice because of what Jesus has done and is doing in and through them. And so do we. Perhaps as you look back at 2021, maybe you're spending some time in these last days to reflect. Perhaps as you're looking forward to 2022, there isn't much for you in your current circumstances that would bring you joy. Maybe Christmas was the pinnacle of your joy for the year, and that is now over. Maybe that joy is beginning to fade, or perhaps even Christmas didn't bring you the joy this year that you had hoped it would, as you remembered memories of Christmases in the past. But we still have much to rejoice in. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, just earlier in this letter, Paul reminds the Corinthians... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become 
rich. Indeed, the Corinthians are rich, and so are we. Not with earthly riches, maybe, right? Probably most of us are not. But with riches untold in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4-7 through 7 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, or transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. We are rich, not with riches of this world, but with riches of His grace and His kindness toward us. Rejoice! We have reason to rejoice. If we go back even further in 2 Corinthians to chapter 5, verse 21, Paul states these words that I, if you've been around here very long, you've heard these words before, no doubt. He made Him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, God made His Son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is what we call imputed righteousness. God imputes our sin to Jesus, and as a result, we are credited with Christ's righteousness. Jesus is our substitute, paying the price that we could never pay so that we could have a reward that we could never earn. And now God sees us as righteous because when He looks at us, He sees us through the righteousness of His Son. Rejoice! Paul continues by telling the Corinthians to be made complete, or as our outline says, to be reconciled to one another. And these words, be made complete, can also be translated as to be restored in some versions, or to put in order, or even to mend your ways. Paul uses these same words earlier uh, at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them in chapter 1, verse 10, where he says this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, the same words there, in the same mind and in the same judgment. Yes, there's a sense in which Paul... Paul's desire for the Corinthians is that they be mature, as this is sometimes translated. Yes, that they mend their ways, that they they get on the right path. But the context of Paul's usage here and and in in the early part of 1 Corinthians is not just referring to that, but referring to being restored to one another. He desires for them to be restored, to be reconciled together. And it's not simply referring to doctrinal or philosophical divisions. Yes, those, but all manners of divisions that are in the church. We divide for all sorts of reasons. Yes, we joke about people and churches dividing over the color of the carpet. But the reality is people do. People do. Silly things like that divide Christians. We ought not to be divided over these things. 
As we near the end of 2021, I don't know if you have been divided with a brother or sister over the course of this year, but as best as you are able, would you make every effort to be reconciled to that brother or sister in Christ? Perhaps even conversations these past days at holiday gatherings have put you at odds with family and friends. Don't let this year pass into the next without seeking as you are able to be restored. And when you have been reconciled, be comforted. The next command here is be comforted by one another. Be comforted and comfort one another. In chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, Paul writes this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Titus had been comforted by the Corinthians, his time there, and his good report to Paul of their longing, their mourning, their zeal for Paul caused him to be comforted and to rejoice despite the fact they were in the midst of conflict and affliction. We are to comfort one another. Paul continues by telling them to be like-minded or literally to, to think the same thing or think the same way. In Philippians 4.2, Paul uses the same expression when he's telling two Christian ladies to live in harmony with one another in the Lord, to live in harmony in the Lord. And again, back in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians verse 10, Paul exhorts the church in Corinth to be of the same mind. We are to agree in the Lord with one another. In Romans 12:16, we are told, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. When we disagree, we are to be patient and humble as we seek out the truth together and work out our differences. That is the call for us as believers in the church. In Philippians 2, 1-2, Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Perhaps you say, that's simply not possible. You don't understand the disagreements I have with this brother or that sister. We could never agree. The reality is that for those of us who are redeemed, we have the same Spirit. The same Holy Spirit lives in each one of us. And according to 1 Corinthians 2.16, we, we have the mind of Christ. We should be able to prayerfully, humbly come to one another and work out our differences. The fifth essential command goes right along with 
being like-minded. It's to live in peace. To live in peace with one another. We are called in Romans 12.18 and in Hebrews 12.14 to pursue peace as far as it depends on us with all men. Everyone around us. But here the context is to pursue peace within the church. That means not being the cause of division, backbiting, quarreling, stirring others up, gossip, seeking to undermine others in their ministry or discredit them. We must be cautious not to do these things, but to pursue peace, promote peace. First Thessalonians five, twelve through thirteen says this But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Here Paul applies the same things to those whom God has placed in leadership in the church. If you have issues with them, go to them as brothers and sisters in Christ are called to do. Go to them so as to maintain peace within the church. Do not seek to undermine or discredit them. Yes, some of these things can be difficult. It can be challenging to work through the things we've talked about so far. That is why Paul includes a promise here at the end of verse 11. And the love of God, or it's not the love of God, and the God of love and peace will be with you. One, pardon me, enduring promise. This enduring promise is the abiding presence of God with us. Not if we do these things, but as we do them. We are to strive for love and peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ because God, our God, is God of love and peace. The things that Paul is calling the Corinthians and us to do may be difficult. It is not always easy to love others, is it? Often it comes with personal cost for us. But we can do these things because we have the help of Almighty God. Do you believe that He is able to help you? He is. Here alone in all of the New Testament we find this title, God of Love. But Paul uses it to drive home the importance, not just of love, but of both of these attributes, love and peace, as essential for unity in the church. You are not called to this task in your own strength. You are not made or called, rather, to do it alone, the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul then turns to his final command found in verses 12 and 13, or if some of you in your Bibles, it may just be verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. <clears throat> now this may perhaps be the favorite verse of middle school boys. I'm not sure. At least upper middle school boys or young high school. I know when I was that age, we thought this might afford us the opportunity to kiss all the girls in youth group. And the leaders had a different interpretation. Um, um, What are we to make of this command? It is imperative. It is a command. Um, 
Are we indeed to greet one another with a kiss? Have we been sinning all this time when we don't greet one another with a kiss? I think our Western North American personal space-driven culture kind of blushes at this idea that we would greet one another with a kiss. But that is not so in, in most of the world. In much of the world, a kiss is a, is a greeting. It's part of a greeting, especially amongst those that are close acquaintances and friends. I grew up as a missionary kid in Bolivia, South America. In Bolivia, it is customary to greet one, of the, one another with a kiss. Two kisses, in fact, sometimes three. Um, but it starts like this, the proper etiquette in, in Bolivia. You, you shake hands, and then you lean to the left, you give a kiss, and then to the right and kiss. And you don't actually kiss the cheek, right? You put the cheeks together, you make a kissing sound. But you're not actually, you know, kissing. Um, that was quite common. I, I, personal space didn't exist when I grew up in Bolivia. I don't think it does to this day. Um, just a, a lot different. It was not uncommon to see even two men walking down the street arm in arm or hand in hand. It was not considered a homosexual thing. Just uh, just mutual friendship. It was similar for us when we were in Italy. Linda and I were missionaries in Italy for a number of years. And I'll show us, share a story with you from my arrival to Italy. Um, sorry, got this tickle in my throat now. Anyway, um, I had gone ahead of Linda to Italy, and ahead of Linda and the kids to Italy to uh, to Trieste to uh, set up our apartment, to get paperwork in order, then they were going to come join me. And, uh, and so I arrived by myself, Trieste Airport. Um, the, the other missionary that we were going there to join had arranged for an older gentleman named Oreste to uh, come and pick me up at the airport. And, uh, and Oreste didn't know any English. Um, he knew Italian, of course. He knew some uh, German, a little bit of French. And, uh, and I knew a few phrases in Italian um, and Spanish, some Spanish. I know, it's, I've, I've lost it, sorry, Echeverria family, my, my Spanish is waning. But, uh, but I knew some Spanish then and English. And so we had this uh, communication barrier. I hadn't really known who was coming to get me. He was there. We got loaded up in the car. He was taking me back to Trieste, I thought. But pretty soon I realized this wasn't the way to Trieste, right? We weren't heading back toward the city. And he was taking me. I didn't know all the details then, but he was taking me to visit an elder uh, of a small kind of dying brethren church in the city, in the town of Monfalcone, which is right near the Trieste airport. And so he wanted me, you know, the new missionary to meet this elder of this church, this older gentleman. And so we pulled up in front of the house and, uh, and I got out and we went to the door and this older gentleman met us at the door. And, uh, and uh, I don't really remember much about him. I remember he had quite large lips. Um, that detail will be more important in a second. But we uh, yeah, see where it's going. But anyway, after some you know, uh, discussion between them, because it was Italian and I didn't really know much, um, I, I sensed that I was going to be formally greeted. And so in doing what, knowing what I, I knew of, of proper uh, protocol for this sort of thing, I, I, uh, I went to, to grab his hand and to lean to the left. Um, but you don't grab hands in Italy, first of all. It's not like a handshake thing. It's more of like an embrace thing. And, uh, and you always go to the right first, which would have been good information to have. So as I went left and he went right, bam, we met in just a warm kiss. It was just very affectionate. And, uh, this other older man, Oreste, was just laughing 
and laughing and laughing at this awkward moment. And we regained our composure, um, and uh, he invited us in for a, a cup of coffee, and then we were on our way to Trieste. Um, Oreste never let me live that down. Uh, he loved to tell that story of how I had just laid a big smacker on this elder from this church in, in Montfalcone. So, anyway... It's a funny story. It was embarrassing. Um, but the point really is this. Um, I had just met this older saint, and even though we had just met, he extended warm affection in greeting me as a brother in Christ. So what are we to make of this command in Corinthians? Is it simply a cultural practice that we are to write off? Um, it isn't written only to the church in Corinth. That's important for us to know. It is written to the church in Rome, the church in Thessalonica as well. In Peter's first epistle, he also tells his audience to greet one another with a kiss of love. And that really is the point, right? This is really about a tangible demonstration of affection, of reception, of acceptance. It's a tangible demonstration of love. Simply put, we are to love one another. D. E. Garland, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, states it this way. I think he did a good job. He says this, A kiss appears in the New Testament as a sign of respect and greeting, of love and reverence, and of reconciliation with family fellowship. We find a parting kiss in Acts 20.37. But a holy kiss represents something more than a social custom. It is a sign of mutual fellowship among persons of mixed social background, nationality, race, and gender who are joined together as a new family in Christ. The holy kiss becomes a token of joy, love, reconciliation, peace, and communion that Christians know in Christ and with one another. We must remember that Paul is writing to local churches and telling them to love one another in this way. Take a look around the room. For those of you who call Valley Bible Church your home, these are your people. These are the people that God has called you to love. If you're here visiting and you're from another church, those are the people God has called you to love in this way. When a large group like we have here on Sunday mornings, obviously it's hard to know exactly who is all even here, much less love everyone, right? It'd be tough. A good place to get to know people and to start putting this in practice would be a life group. Yes, we're called to love everyone that's here, um, but, but a life group gives you a smaller group of people in which you can begin to put this into practice so if you would consider it, get involved in a life group. This has been a busy Christmas week for our family. We had several surprises that ended up just putting more on our plate than we even imagined we would have. We knew it was going to be busy anyway. But with Christmas Day sandwiched between Christmas Eve services and between this morning, it's been busy. We really haven't had much time as a family this, this Christmas yet. We hope to have some in this coming week. But we sure felt loved yesterday morning 
when a couple from our life group showed up with homemade cinnamon rolls, with a big pan of bacon, and, uh, and blessed us. We didn't have to make anything. We enjoyed it together. Um, it was a, a tangible demonstration of love to us. What a blessing. If you aren't involved in a life group, I encourage you to get involved in one. They probably won't bring you awesome cinnamon rolls like our life group does, but they may. They may. And so uh, get involved in a life group. Um, now listen, I, we don't currently have very many life groups with room in them. And so it may mean sacrificing a certain night of the week or canceling another activity. You may have to be flexible with us, but we'd love to see you get involved in a life group. And so stop by. If one of those evenings doesn't work for you or a location doesn't work, we'll, we'd Get your name and information. We'd love to see you plugged into a life group if this is your church home. And so please do consider that. It will be worth it. We are called to love one another. And I've often heard Christians say something to this effect, and perhaps you have too. Well, I know that I'm supposed to love so-and-so, that guy over there, right? But that doesn't mean I have to like them. You heard that? Well, I've heard that doesn't mean we have to be friends. This simply is not true. If that is your attitude toward a brother or sister in Christ, repent. You need to repent and ask God to remind you of the love that He has demonstrated to you. And then ask Him to help you to demonstrate that love to someone else. To demonstrate affection toward that person. If you can't do that, you need to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. Because that is the reality that we are called to, is to love one another. Paul is quick to add this. He says, all the saints greet you. It's possible that Paul is writing this letter from Philippi. Um, it, it's, and is referring to the church there, that are all the saints. Um, He's almost certainly writing it from Macedonia at somewhere, and so perhaps he is meaning all of the churches in Macedonia, all of the believers together, greet them. Either way, it is a quick reminder that this church, the Corinthian church, is not alone. They're part of something much larger, the larger church. There are other believers who are also living these truths out, who are struggling with some of the same things. There are others who know of the situation in Corinth, There are others who love them, who are praying for them. They are not alone, and neither are we. We must remember that. We are part of something larger. We have some of our churches where we have global outreach partners around the world that are are praying for us as well as we pray for them. Remember that. Paul ends with one encouraging benediction. If you're taking notes, one encouraging benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here we find one of the most Trinitarian verses in all of Scripture. For we see each of the three persons of the Godhead on display. Paul ends several of his letters with the words, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you or be with your spirit. But here alone, he includes God the Father and the Holy Spirit in this benediction. In this, we are reminded 
of the Latin theological axiom or principle, or at least I'm reminded of, of this uh, principle, opera trinitatis ad extra indivisa sunt. You all know what that means, right? Aha, no. <laughs> the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. The external works of the Trinity are indivisible. We see this truth throughout the Gospels, as we've been looking at the Gospel of John, that Jesus, the Son of God, always fulfills the will of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity always on display, and Jesus, as he performs miracles and teaches, he always did the will of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. We also see this in our salvation, don't we? For it was the to demonstrate his love for us that the Father sent the Son. It's by grace that we are saved through faith in what the Son has done. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings us into fellowship with the Father and the Son by drawing us, by opening our blind eyes to the truth, by making us alive and transforming us, transforming our wills so that we will believe. What a beautiful reminder for us as we end the year. Be encouraged by all God has done for us. At the same time, these verses serve as a reminder both for Paul's audience and for us of some final lessons. The first is that we be gracious with one another for great grace has been extended to each one of us in Christ Jesus. That we love one another Remembering the love which the Father has shown to us through the gift of His Son and Jesus' love for us. For greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That we be in fellowship with one another. Remembering that the same Spirit who brings us into fellowship with the triune God is the same Spirit that dwells in each and every one of us who have placed our faith in Christ. And that enables us to have this fellowship with one another. And lastly, be encouraged. Take heart. Rejoice. Remember that God of love and peace will be with you. This is not a task we take on alone, nor one that just because we or may have failed in the past, we cannot pursue as we head into a new year. No, we are not alone. The God of love and peace will be with us. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, our time of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Um, the Lord's Supper is a, a shared meal for all of those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. It is a reminder for us of of His death, His burial, and His resurrection because we celebrate it until He comes. That is part of, of what we do. Um, it reminds us of His body broken for us, His blood shed. It's called communion because it's something that we do in fellowship with one another. Often it's called that. Um, as believers, it, it serves as a declaration of our faith. And so anyone who would say, yes, I trust in Christ as my Savior, you are welcome to to participate in this. If you have not believed in Jesus, I would encourage you not to. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the message this morning that earlier in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul tells the Corinthians to test themselves. He says, test yourselves to see 
if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And in 2 Corinthians, those, that language is not directly in context with the, the Lord's Supper. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is giving instruction on the Lord's Supper, and he calls them to examine themselves. He reminds them that they should not eat or drink in an unworthy manner, but they should first examine themselves. It is fitting that we too, thinking back over this past year, should take a moment to reflect on whether there's anything that we need to set right with the Lord or with a brother or sister in Christ before we partake together. If you need to abstain so you can set things right first, I encourage you to do so. We'll take a little bit of time in silence, just a a break here, and then we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Ben is going to read uh, the lyrics to a song we sing often, um, but we're going to just uh, have a time of, of contemplation, thinking back over this year, looking ahead to what the Lord has for us. But uh, if there's something that you need to set it right, set it right. Get your heart right with the Lord um, before we partake together. And then, of course, we will pray and partake uh, together of the Lord's Supper. <laughs>